Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Life According to Adeshale podcast. I am your host, Adetokunbo Adeshale, and this is podcast episode number 16, count it, numero 16. On today's podcast, we will have Reverend Ashley Horan, who is the executive director of the Minnesota Unitarian Universalist Social Justice Alliance, also known as Moosja. Really like the name of that, Moosja. I had a great experience talking with Ashley, and I actually got to be under her tutelage for a week as I went through a class that was located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I think this is one of my most uh, spiritually geared and social justice geared podcast interviews to this date, and I think it's pretty amazing. So I hope you all enjoy, listen in, and if you have any questions, feel free to shoot me an email at latapodcast at gmail.com. Or find me on the Instagram, on the grams, at Sacred Fire and Fire Spell for Three uh, on Instagram. All right, let's cue that music. And so we're beginning. So thank you very much, Ashley, for spending time after a week. Yeah, we've had a week, huh? <laughs> a week of, of meeting every day from 8.37 at least. At least. <laughs> at least 8.37 to 5 o'clock at minimum. Uh-huh. Right? So doing a lot of work around multi, multi-racial justice, um, race relations, community, congregational life, and supporting people. Lots of, lots of good things. Yeah. Tell the people who you are. And some of the stuff that you do. Sure. Uh, my name is Ashley Horan. I am a Unitarian Universalist minister um, and a, a pastor, a social justice uh, advocate. Um, I've got several jobs. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, my primary job is as the executive director of the Minnesota Unitarian Universalist Social Justice Alliance. Which is um, for short? Moose Jaw. Moose Jaw. That's what we All call right. it. That's right. There are gestures that you can't see on the podcast, but it kind of goes like this. There's some antlers. And Got it. I'll see if I can get a picture yes, and please. post that out to the world. <laughs> uh, so in that capacity, I, um, you know, it's a faith-based social justice uh, ministry. So I work with... Um, our denomination, the Unitarian Universalists, uh, which I'll talk about in okay. a second. Um, and we have 26 congregations in Minnesota. And so we, oh, wow. um, okay. you know, we do congregational support. We bring people together. We help um, grow their skills and their capacity around social justice. Um, we also um, do a lot of interfaith work uh, as well as um, partnership with secular organizers and activists mm. who are leading movements for justice. So. Um, all kinds of different stuff, trying okay. to make the world a better place in partnership with other people. Um, so that's one job. Another job that I have is working um, with a congregational program uh, that's designed to help people look at how um, how we move to dismantle racism in the world, uh, in our congregations, in our lives, and in our society. So it's um, it's called Beloved Conversations. It's a program that lives at Meadville Lombard Theological School. Um, but we've got a team of folks who go to congregations around the country, and we um, run an opening retreat, and then the folks in that congregation, sort of in small group ministry style, um, run eight two-hour sessions after that. And it starts sort of personally and interpersonally, and it moves into understanding how racism operates in institutions and in bigger systems in the society at large and giving people some skills to try and change those things. Okay. So I'm very curious. So I'm curious about, you know, people may not know what small what ministerial mm-hmm. small groups mean. Sure. Maybe you could talk about that and what it, what a UU is because that's, yep. for some people, that's a very foreign word. Absolutely. Um, I know very well. For yep. those of you who do not know, I, I attend a UU school, which is Meadville Lombard Theological School. Uh, so yes, anyways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is always a test, right? Unitarian Universalists are notorious for not being able to describe what Unitarian Universalism is. So we'll see if my elevator speech is on point today. Okay. If um, not, we can edit it. Right. It's good. It's good. So um, what I always say is Unitarian Universalism is a liberal faith tradition that grows out of Christianity, um, but has become a bigger tent theologically. Mm. So there's folks who have various different kinds of practices ranging from um, 
you know, atheists who might pray a little bit to, uh, <laughs> to you know, lapsed um, Christians who, who don't like to pray anymore, to Buddhists, to pagans, to um, humanists who have all kinds of different practices. So a broad theological tent. But um, I think the defining thing is that we believe very deeply uh, in the inherent worth and dignity of all people um, and in the profound interconnection of all human beings to one another and to the earth. Um, and that we are the hands of God, of whatever you call um, the thing that is bigger than us. We're the hands of God here on earth, and that it is our job to make the world into a place where all people can live and flourish and be free. So that's my that's my elevator speech by hey, Unitarian Universalism. I might have to memorize that. All right, buddy. Myself. Well said. Well said. So then, so so being so you're a UU minister is so you're. Being a UU minister and doing social justice and and racial justice work, did that did that spring out of you being a UU or how did that how did that all come about? I mean, you're doing yeah. a lot right now at, at some very high level. So how how did this happen? Yeah, it's a it's an interesting question. Um, so I'm a white lady. You can't see me on the podcast, but um, I grew up in a very liberal family, but in pretty conservative social environments. Mm-hmm. I went to Catholic school for much of my life, and I lived in a um, you know, fairly liberal, but still all white neighborhood growing up. Um, but I, you know, it's funny, I don't really know where it comes from, but since I was a very small person, I yearned for relationships um, and understanding with uh, communities and people who were just different than me. And I think I always sensed the limitations of what I was growing up in. Um, and I always, you know, had a streak of self-righteous indignation about all the things. Okay. <laughs> really? Okay. Combination. Um, but, you know, I grew up and I, um, you know, I think uh, environmentalism and feminism really are some of the, the things that my, my parents brought into my life at my school, um, my early school experience before I went into Catholic school brought into my life. Um, and then, you know, as you turn into a teenager, you start rebelling, period. But then I was in this very conservative, all-girls Catholic school where I was, okay. like, a lone Unitarian Universalist. And I just, my poor religion teachers, oh, my God, they really are saints for putting so, up with me. But <laughs> So you were UU while in, yeah. in, in high school? Yep, I grew okay. up Unitarian you grew Universalist. You up Unitarian Universalist. Okay. Um, and it was really life-saving for me in a lot of ways because I was... Um, I perceived myself as being so different politically, theologically, um, than so many of my classmates. Um, so anyway, you know, I went, I went off to college. Um, I, um, my, my undergraduate major is in Francophone African cultures. So Western Central Africa, French speaking Africa, history of colonialism, um, but through lots of different disciplines. Um, I focused especially on storytelling. Uh, and oral tradition as a way of making meaning of the world and responding to change in the world. So um, I spent time in Cameroon and in Senegal. Um, And then I graduated and I ended up um, teaching in various capacities for several years. So I did some, like, one-on-one tutoring. I taught, like, adult immersion French for a while. I taught middle school Spanish in the public schools. Um, And I had always... I knew that teaching was a part of my uh, my gift in the world and what I was called to do, but I was finding that that was too limited for what I wanted to be doing, um, and that I did, I did not have some of the pieces that make really excellent, um, successful teachers in the long haul. Like I, um, The people who are transformative teachers, I think, have an ability to work within systems without mm. letting them either beat them up or... Um, get co-opted by them and I just there's something in me that does not let me do that well within a system so I felt like the good that I was doing as a teacher was in spite of my job description and not because of it Um, so I decided to go to seminary uh, and I went to Meadville Lombard uh, Theological School in Chicago Um, how did you choose upon that because Meadville isn't the only place for UUs there's Harvard if I recall I mean it's not UU only but 
yeah, there's all so there's all there's a tradition there, right. and then Star King, I believe, as well. Yep. So there's two uniquely UU schools that are UU identity schools: uh, Meadville Lombard in Chicago, and then Star King in the Bay Area. Um, there are also a lot of divinity schools that have like big pockets of UU. Okay. Like you mentioned, Harvard. There's Iliff School of Theology in Colorado. There's, I didn't um, realize I was yeah, okay. uh, Andover Newton. Some of the like oh. Claremont School of Theology in Southern California. Um, number of pockets of UUs in various places, but. Because I had spent so long in, like, Catholic school and in um, non-UU spaces, I actually wanted to be um, surrounded by other people who shared my faith tradition. Like, that was actually a really important thing for me. Um, because I had already done comparative religion, right? Like, for my yeah. whole life. So it was yes. like, what I needed was to be with my people and get really strong in that. So, um, yeah, I moved from Chicago. By that point, I had lived in... Um, you know, I grew up in the Twin Cities, but I went to college in Boston, lived in Seattle for a year, uh, went back to Minneapolis for a little while, and then moved to Chicago. So um, I started there in 2008. Um, and, uh, you know, at, at that point, Meadville's program was a four year program. I was the last of the last the class last of residential of the... students. Oh. Um, just as the new program was getting inaugurated. And, um, the, the summer between my first and second year of seminary, I met my partner, who is also a Unitarian Universalist minister. Um, she was, <coughs> excuse me, she was working as a chaplain at the University of Chicago Children's Hospital, <coughs> Comer, uh, at that point. Um, and so, you know, I, I, with the exception of my congregational internship where I, I went out to California for a year, um, you know, my life changed because I had met my partner and her daughter, who was nine when I met her. She's 17 now. Um, but so ended up being anchored in Chicago uh, after I graduated. So I served um, a little congregation outside of Chicago in Joliet, Illinois, for a couple of years, uh, which was lovely. I loved those folks and those people, and it was a great introduction to ministry in many ways. Um, and then we decided to move back to Minneapolis where my family is uh, chosen and biological family and so you know one of us had to get the the, the good high paying job with the benefits and yeah. it was Karen who got that job um, well, let's not say high paying but the, the the job that could pay the bills you yes, know yes, yes. <laughs> yeah nobody ministry makes work, the big yeah. bucks on the on the ministry bill you know um, but anyway so she got a full time job as a um, clinical pastoral education supervisor she teaches okay. chaplains how to be chaplains basically oh, awesome. um and then, so I, there were very few jobs that were available, and I ended up taking this job as the director of Moose Jaw, the Minnesota Unitarian Universalist Social Justice Alliance. Moose Jaw. Uh, Moose Jaw. Um, I ended up taking that job, thinking that I was going to be in it for, I don't know, a year, maybe two. Okay. Um, and I had always had a very strong social justice ethic. I had done a lot of activism and that kind of stuff, but it was not where I had envisioned my ministry living um but i took this job and well, let, let, yeah. let me go back because that is really interesting so for those of you that uh don't know uh just because you go to seminary doesn't mean you have to be a minister so there's and especially uh with the uu organization or religion faith you can be a minister you can do community uh ministry which is a little bit different uh, you can go on, continue to get your doctor. So there are a number of pathways, and that's kind of a question that comes up throughout yeah. the, the process of being in seminary. And so you went to a congregation after and then yep. chose some. Just curious what your thoughts were while you were in seminary and then yeah. while you lose job. I mean, I always thought I was going to be a pastor of a congregation. Um, and there are lots of things that I that I miss about that, for sure. Um, and I, I thought after I took this job as a community minister, um, working with institutions and multiple congregations rather than being the pastor yeah. of one congregation. Um, you know, I, th I thought I would go back. And um, part of what happened is that, so three weeks after I took the job in the summer of 2014, Michael Brown was killed in um, Ferguson, Missouri. And... You said two um, weeks after? Yeah. It was, okay. it was, I was very, very new. Wow. Um, and... So you're at a social justice organization your right. second week in right you're probably still figuring out which keys are for which exactly <laughs> and this event yeah. which is very much at least i understand 
matter of social issues, racial mm-hmm. justice happens. Right. Okay. And, and, you know, in many ways that the world exploded around that. I mean, that was such a catalyzing moment. Um, and it, it, in Minneapolis, it was the... Um, it was the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement there. The, the, there were a group of really amazing folks who started a chapter of Black Lives Matter in Minneapolis, um, which went on to become you know, a, a galvanizing and incredibly powerful movement in our city um, that has been acknowledged around the country to be one of the strongest um, chapters of BLM you know, anywhere. Um, and so that was happening at the same time that I had just been you know, asked to come in and lead Unitarian Universalists in social justice. Um, I was also really new back to Minneapolis. You know, I had grown up in the Twin Cities, but, um, it, you know, I didn't have the depth of relationships that a lot of organizers have to be successful, right? Like, you you got to know people. You have to have relationships. People need to know you and be trusted in order to do good and effective work. And I was so new. Um, but... What happened is that I sort of, I I came into this organization and the world shifted. And so I had probably more flexibility to shift the way that things, the the things that we were doing, the the model of organizing we were using. Um, And the people that I was organizing, Unitarian Universalists, who are largely white, largely affluent, largely educated, largely liberal people, um, were all asking, they were like, what the hell is going on in the world? And what is our role in trying to change things and shift things? Um, so just because everything sort of felt like it was on fire, I think it was this moment where I was actually able to make some really deep relationships very quickly, um, both with Unitarian Universalists and with other activists in the community and folks who are, um, you know, doing incredible work. So for example, um, Lena K. Gardner, who is now the executive director of Black Lives of Unitarian Universalism, our national organization with the Unitarian Universalists, um, she was one of the co-founders of the Minneapolis Black Lives Matter chapter, and she's a Unitarian Universalist. So I ran into her early, early oh, in wow. my work there, and so um, week three. Yeah, I mean maybe not maybe not that early. I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if we were physically in the same space together, but I don't think wow. I I actually got to know her um, until a little bit later, but it, it wasn't that long. Um, so, you know, shift, stuff just shifted and changed so fast. And I, like, you know, and then, of course, um, the, the other thing I should say is I was pregnant when uh, when we moved back to Minneapolis, and so I had my first child wow. in December of 2014. Um, I should say the first child that I gave birth to. We have an older child who is... Um, as I mentioned before, who is uh, now 17. At that point, she was, you know, 15. Um, Anyway, but so I gave birth uh, in December of 2014. And when Aspen, our kiddo, was 11 days old, um, the Black Lives Matter chapter organized this massive protest of 3,000 people at the Mall of America (coughs) in protest of... Um, a lot the, uh, of police brutality largely, the killing of black men by militarized police forces. Um, and it was this huge event. Um, it, you know, you can read the story of the Mall of America, Black Lives Matter protests online, but um, it, it was the first thing that I did as a parent, right? So I had, I had, hmm. my, I had my 11-day-old child, our teenager, and my, um, and my partner. All of us were there at this, and with the faith community, right? So we were asked to be there as clergy um, and show up. And it was at that moment that there was a real sense that like people of faith were really needed. So at that particular protest, the clergy were asked to make a big ring around um, the black and brown folks uh, who were doing a die-in, a four and a half minute die-in, you know, in accordance with the four and a half, four and a half hours that Michael Brown lay in the streets of Ferguson. Um, So we, it was clear that like there was a place for clergy and for people of faith in this movement and that we needed to be there. And then of course we saw the, you know, the arrests of the folks who um, had been being surveilled by the mall and by local law enforcement agencies and yada, yada, yada. Um, So, you know, this turned into this struggle that we were all in together, um, led by these incredibly fierce uh, black leaders and then all kinds of other, you know, 
organizations, um, black and brown, queer and trans folks, like everywhere are just popping off. And so my job was really to help bring Unitarian Universalists into that struggle in helpful ways and to try and help our folks who had really never, for the most part, never had experience with that level of activism, in particular with disruptive, you know, nonviolent um, stuff like shutting down freeways and blocking the road to the airport on the busiest day of the year and like um, boycotting the city of Bloomington because their prosecutor was pressing charges against the organizers, you know, and it's um, accompanying people to court dates. So, you know, um, in the, it was in that context that I got to do this job. And simultaneously, I was watching Unitarian Universalist congregations around the country really struggling in deep ways with how to respond to the movement for black lives, to, um, you know, the increased rhetoric of fear and hatred and Islamophobia and transphobia and homophobia. I mean, like, we've seen this upsurge long before Trump was elected, right? I mean, it... Um, but I found myself so glad that I didn't, that I could move more quickly than our congregations. Like I found mm. that my disposition and my skills um, for ministry were much more lined up with um, pulling people forward and really inviting people into work that was led by more radical communities um, than doing the really slow and incredibly important work of being in congregations and sort of trying to help people have conversations across difference and heal divides and and bring people along, but it's slow work. And I was not dis I was not and continue to not be <laughs> I think um, disposed to that work. I don't think that's where my best strengths and skills are. Well, um, it it sounds like it goes back to what you were saying before about being a teacher and that that was working within a very confined mm -hmm. system and that wasn't yeah working for you and so it sounds like being at moose jaw yep right okay good i got it you being at moose jaw it's well there's just sort of a number of things going but it's one being the, the leader of that organization it sounds like it positioned you so that you could mm -hmm. move around effectively and yep. help out multiple yeah. groups at one time there's certainly part of that the other piece is that it is radically collaborative work that i get to do um so Sure, I'm in charge of my little organization, but I also, part of my job is building relationships with other people. So, um, you know, with the local Black Lives Matter chapter, with a bunch of other faith folks leading congregations or um, other faith-based justice organizations doing the work, you know. Um, so it is very rare that I am ever making a unilateral decision. Um, and... You know, I've been very lucky. My board and our, you know, our constituency have been incredibly supportive of us creating these deep partnerships and really following the lead of um, what we call frontline communities, right? The people who are most directly experiencing injustice, um, telling folks who are a little more privileged, like, this is what we need from you. Here's how you can leverage your resources. Here, here's how you can show up. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think, the development of those relationships has been incredibly important and, and deeply like liberating for me. Parish ministry can be a really lonely thing, especially, you know, the vast majority of our congregations are small and they only have one pastor and, um, you know, not enough resources, not enough staff. And like, you know, I'm still only half time as the executive director of my organization, but we've finally been able to hire another organizer half time. And I get to work with this incredible community of people, which absolutely makes me not feel isolated and alone so i'm i so i'm definitely so there's a, there's a couple things before we go on that i want to touch back on one uh i i get the, that sense of so when you started your conversation earlier you talked about being curious mm. about others and difference and it seems like that has led you to perhaps be more willing than some may be uh at building relationships um I also see a very, I don't know if you want to call it bravery, I, I, I don't know what you felt like being a parent at this large event. Like that, that's, that's what was sitting with me there. Like mm -hmm. what, I, I don't want to ask it to, to just make it to, to, to super highlight, but it's striking to me and perhaps for many people, if they can imagine what a huge gathering of people where you know, you may have some issues with 
of mm-hmm. law enforcement, yep. right? You know, but you also believe that you're doing your your civic and social responsibility mm-hmm. and duty, and yeah. you have those who may be most precious to you and most vulnerable right. with you. Yeah. What What was that experience like, and yeah. what did that do for you? Continuing yeah. the work at that, because that could have been a turning point. That yeah. for some people that could end and. With their own concern and care, yeah. right? I'm not wouldn't judge them. They could have said, I this isn't for me. So yeah. I'm just curious right. like what happened at that point before yeah. we go on. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it seems important to say here too, I said, you know, I described myself as a white lady earlier. I'm also, you know, partnered with a black person. Our older child is black and our youngest child is um a multiracial. Um and so, you know, it is literally my family who we are talking about when we talk about, you know, encounters with law enforcement and the fear of, you know, is your family going to come home alive? And, um, you know, when we say Black Lives Matter, it it is saying my family matters. Um, And so there's a different level over my life as I built those relationships, there's a different level of connection for me. Um, and, and so, you know, it's cheesy to say it, but it's actually true. It's like, I'm doing this for my kids. I'm doing this because my kids and so many people who I love and care about, um, number one, it's important for them to see uh, somebody who looks like me show up. Um, number two is that it is, you know, I'm being asked as a white person to show up. Number three is that it's not just me, right? Like I'm with my little family unit and then we're with a hundred or a thousand or 3000 other people, um, who also have similar convictions, who also, um, share a dream of that world in which we don't have to be afraid of people not making it home alive. Um, and as an organizer, um, somebody who tries to build power by building relationships and communities of people who are ready to have each other's backs. That's basically what organizing is, right? Um, as an organizer, I have experienced firsthand how much safer we are when we are uh, greater in number, right? So, like, sure, yeah, there were there were police officers all over the place, and in fact, the city of Bloomington called in the police forces from like fourteen or fifteen surrounding communities to come there in their riot gear and like respond to this incredibly peaceful protest. Um, but actually, we were incredibly safe because there were three thousand of us there who were protecting each other, who were all together. Um, you know, I mean, this is the way it works with schools of fishes, right? Like predators will pick off the people on the edges. They pick off um, the, the the ones who fall behind if the group doesn't stay with them. And like, what is clear is that when there is a, a large group, you know, that group can protect itself even against a predator that is much stronger. And that's how I feel about doing, you know, what we call movement building, which is building um not just the numbers, but the trust and the relationship that allows people to keep each other safe in the face of a state, of um, an economic system, of you know, oppress- all, any number of systems of oppression that are designed to make people unsafe. And so when you develop those relations of trust and the numbers, we can keep each other safe. And so I, I didn't ever fear for having my 11-year-old child, I mean, my 11-day-old child there. I didn't fear to have my black teenage child there because I knew that other people had our backs and we had other people's backs. Awesome. That's great. Good. Good. So, so moving forward. So, you're at this event. You're with your family, with your people. You continue on in the work and and you continue to build relationships. Um, which is key for the work that you're mm-hmm. doing. So, how how are you able to um, continue building relationships that you were, were doing? Because I know you said things had shifted. Yeah. There's so much going on. Um, yeah. You got to meet one of the leaders from the very beginning, but I wouldn't that, say that I was a leader from the beginning. I would say that I knew some things about what it looks like to follow well and to bring other people along in that. Um, and I certainly learned some new lessons about that along the way. Got, uh, you know, humbled quite a bit. Um, but I'm, I'm going to talk about two events that happened within like eight months of each other, actually. Um, so in November of 20, 
2015, I believe, um, Jamar Clark was killed by the Minneapolis police. Um, and the response from our community, led by the Minneapolis Black Lives Matter chapter, um, was to come to the Minneapolis 4th Precinct, uh, the police department, and to stage a community occupation, this creation of um, almost a, a different world. Like, and, and I, you know, that's that's a whole story that is probably not really mine to tell, but um, that was one of the most transformative experiences of my life, as being invited into that kind of community that was both um, deeply resistant to what had happened and being very clear that we will not allow this to happen. And also doing such incredibly profound community care for each other, healing trauma, responding to trauma, um, feeding people, keeping people warm. I mean, it's November in Minnesota, so it was uh -huh. damn cold. <laughs> okay, wow. Okay. Um, but just the ways that I saw both of the resistance and the resilience show up in that moment was transformative. Um, and then the following summer, uh, the the police in a suburb of St. Paul um, shot and killed Jamar Clark, uh, and we saw his death happen on live feed on Facebook. Um, many of us did. Wow. Um, wow. And we, my community had just been through this trauma of losing Jamar Clark and having the, the intense community responses that were around that. And so those muscles, um, for better or worse, were, I mean, they were, we were trained up. We knew what to do, right? And so there's this um, immediate reaction, having learned from what it looked like when Jamar Clark was killed. And again, led by black and brown folks who uh, were conceiving strategic movements, um, you know, not just about like protest and response, but, you know, so, so we had to respond again. <laughs> so there were, there, there were two people. There were two. So let me get the names again, please. Jamar Clark was killed by the Minneapolis police okay. in uh, November of 2015. And then Philando Castillo was killed in the summer of 2016. Um, so only, only like, you know, seven, eight months apart. Um, and... You know, not only does that cause intense trauma in a community, but it also, in our case, um, looked like a like a this massive organized response from people all over the place because we had been through it before, right? I mean, like we knew what was up. We'd fought the Mall of America cases for our people who were getting on these like trumped up charges. And then, you know, we'd shut down the airport for a little while and we'd shut down freeways and we'd, you know, had these um, experiences of occupation first at um, the fourth precinct. And then when Philando was killed at the governor's mansion in, in St. Paul. Um, and then of course there's also not just the like response to trauma, but also the proactive work that was happening. You know, I'm watching, um, the fight for $15 an hour living wage being fought by, um, you know, largely immigrant communities, but, you know, workers of all kinds. We're watching, um, you know, fighting the city council on, you know, more militarization of our police force of, um, you know, these getting them to drop like the spitting and lurking laws that were criminalizing black people for being outside in their neighborhoods, right? Like they're arresting people for spitting on the sidewalk, right? You know, um, and, and people doing really constructive work around like, what does it look like to try and confront whiteness, to dismantle whiteness, to, um, what's the response of people of faith? So, you know, it wasn't always just responding to trauma, but, um, the work has really turned, you know, in the crucible of the trauma, there is the, there's the opportunity to forge relationship and to um, develop this fabric that is then makes us safer and safer, right? Mm. I, I'm sorry, I was just taken aback by the point that there was spitting and lurking laws. How, I mean, wow. Wow. Right? Wow. That's, wow. That's, that's yeah. I don't even know what to do with that. And I can imagine a group of people being particularly isolated and pointed at with that, you know, which most people of color. Mm -hmm. And then I also think, you know, and all the trauma with that. Right. And then I think about also the law enforcement officers who, they, 
their, their job is to save lives and serve and protect and, and you're forcing them to stop someone because they spit? Way yeah, I mean, to it's, disrespect everybody yeah, and their it's integrity. In, it's incredibly, uh, the whole, I mean, you know, and I, I'll, I'll come clean here that I, I'm an abolitionist. I believe that um, a system that punishes people, that puts people in cages, that takes away people's humanity, that sets human beings up to have to make life or death decisions um, that are often grounded in the ways that we've been socialized to be afraid of other people. I don't actually think the policing system is redeemable. I don't think the way that policing is practiced in this country, which is based on, um, you know, it, it grows so directly out of slavery and colonialism that it, um, I don't know that it's redeemable. Hear me when I say that does not mean that I cast away police officers. I have police officers in my family who I respect and love. Um, but we love them because they are human beings, but and not because they're police officers, right? I mean, like, so you're 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 separating the system and yes. the system's flaws from the people who are just trying to do Absolutely. good work. And as with any broken system, um, I believe that being in the system causes harm to all people who are impacted by it. Those who are actors in it, in the case of police, um, and people who are targeted by that system. Um, so, I recognize that that is not a position that most people hold and um, for me it's part of part of what brings me to the work um, so yeah I mean you know all of this is going on <laughs> all of this is part of the context that we live in and the question is you know so what's my role sitting where I am with my people knowing the people who I know um, and over and over again the answer to that has been help people build stronger relationships build more connections leverage the power that I have to um, to move things faster, to make people safer. You know, how do we get churches to, like, lend their resources to, to activists who are doing work? How do we get people of faith to show up and leverage the, the political power we have um, when we speak in public? How do, how do we um, minister to, you know, in largely white congregations, how do we minister to the resistance that people are feeling as black and brown folks um, assert their humanity and take control, right? Um, and then, of course, you know, we get the election that happened about a year ago um, that certainly spawned a whole lot of psychic crisis for many, many, many people. Um, and the policy changes that have followed from that that are impacting people that we know and love. And I think the short answer is I'm not going to be out of a job anytime soon, you know? I mean, <laughs> the, the systems that we are up against are fierce. And I can also say that, like, I feel so blessed to be a part of a community that has been working, you know, to prepare for these kinds of moments for a long time. Which and, community are you talking about? Um, I, I, I mean my community in Minneapolis. Um, I also mean, I think, Unitarian Universalists. Um, I feel like because there is so much diversity and so much incredible leadership in my community in Minneapolis, we're probably a little bit unique in the country in terms of um, what we're able to do and respond and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it is what gives me hope. It's what helps me to wake up every day um, knowing that, you know, we still have the president that we have and that the things happen to people that are happening to people. And um, it doesn't mean that I'm, what is it? Somebody says, I'm not optimistic, but I'm hopeful. <laughs> Okay. Um, and I think it's it's the people and the community and the small things that we do for each other to redeem and save each other that happen every day that I see that keep me hopeful. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, in, in thinking about that, so there's there's a lot that one there, and all the things that there's a lot that one can do. Can you name just a few elements of relationship building? Because that seems to be that seems to be what's key for mm -hmm. the work that you're doing. If if I can, should I call you an activist overall or organizer? How? Sure. How, I mean, what? I'm an. You know, you could call me a number of things. I'm a I'm a pastor. I'm an organizer. Right. I'm an activist. I think organizer is probably you know. Um, I will often say that my call to ministry is to help political community communities develop deeper spiritual grounding and to help spiritual communities develop deeper political grounding. 
Who's okay? So, you want me to say that hold, again? Hold on, people. <laughs> if you don't have a pen and paper or or something, phones, recording device, whatever you need to, take a few moments, get that together. I'm speaking very slow, so you can do this. I'm serious. Take a few moments and get there. If you're driving, pull over safely. Um, <laughs> whatever you gotta do, because I I think she's like, minister, right? To drop. Mm -hmm. about, to, about to drop some wisdom here. <laughs> So, I want to make sure that you all get this, okay? Please, please, re re tell me what you were saying. So, I understand my particular call to ministry, grounded in both who I am and what I have to offer the world, um, as well as what I see needed in the communities that I'm a part of. My call to ministry is to nurture political grounding, within spiritual communities and to nurture spiritual grounding in political communities. So what that means is, you know, to help, to help activists um, from any number of different theological frames or orientations or traditions um, to, to do the spiritual work of self-care, to do the spiritual work of, um, developing ritual that helps us survive trauma, to help people um, nurture relationships and and find the, the wellsprings of resilience that help us survive the world, right? So that's what I mean by developing spiritual grounding in political community. And then, you know, religion has this reputation for being otherworldly and yeah. focused on, you know, pie in the sky, by and by, and Beulah land. Um, and my tradition, my universalist tradition, tells me that um, I don't actually have to worry about the next life. We're already saved. And so what i got to worry about is whether we have heaven or hell here on earth. And that we are the builders of that, the architects of that as human beings. And so um, what that means is that we have to be astute. We have to be... Um, we have to know what's going on. And so instead of putting our heads in the sand and ignoring... Um, the systems of oppression around us and the ways that they work, we have to be actively engaged in fusing faith and justice. We have to understand um, how politics work, how the systems work in order to um, shift the world toward the kind of world we, we yearn for. Mm. That's all. Wow. Okay. I, so I was gonna start that. You know, what are two steps? Right, 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 right. Because there might be someone on, on listening to this right now, or who's had this transcribed and is reading it, and they may be like, "Wow, just spoke to what I, I, I would like to do that. Yeah. How does one get on the path? And, and how does one get on the path? How does one start to build the skills?" that you, you just mentioned. Yeah. So I think the answer that comes to mind right now is that you need both a political home and a spiritual home. Sometimes those are the same thing. What I mean by that is a place... So I had a friend once who gave me the metaphor of like... Um, you know, we live in a world in which a whole lot of people are working for justice right? Um, maybe you're, you know, working specifically on environmental justice and I'm working on racial justice and, and maybe we have different tactics even within those movements and whatever. But like when the revolution comes, your political home is the folks that you know are going to show up at the bus stop that you know where it is at the designated time and you're going to get on the bus together to go meet everybody else over at the revolution. So the idea is like your people within the broader community, who are the people that you trust to show up to save each other, you know. So often what that looks like is like political home can be like an organization that is doing work that you really, really care about um, with people who share the same values and who are stretching you and pushing you in your development. Um, you know, it, it's bigger than like uh, the Democratic Party or the Republic. You know, I mean, it's like it needs to be actually a community of people who are really struggling and working together um, on issues that you believe are critical to the flourishing of human beings in the world, right? So that's that's what I would call political home. And I think spiritual home is about um, places, communities, um, 
that are, are wellsprings for um, energy, for healing, for giving you the, you know, the Energizer Bunny, right? Yeah. Like yeah, <laughs> filling yeah. up the Energizer Bunny so it can keep going and going okay. and going and going. Um, and I think it's a cycle, right? So for me, my faith means that like j doing work for justice is a natural byproduct of my faith. And um, my faith is a natural byproduct of the social justice work I do. So okay. that's like a cycle for me. And so um, my advice for people is to figure out, you know, who are, who are your people? Um, it doesn't have to be the end of who your people are. It's not a limit, but like, what is what is a spiritual community and a political community that you see as like, yeah, these are my people. They're giving me life. They're giving me courage. Um, they give me the sense that I am connected to something bigger than myself and that I have the ability to make a difference. And I think that can look a million different ways. You know, for me, it was seminary and, you know, the luck of getting this job or whatever, but like broader picture, I think it's like the relationship comes before the path. And when you get in deep relationship with people, you'll figure out what the right path is to use your gifts and skills to match up with what the world needs. So, thank you for that. That's super helpful to know. Um, so my question is, with what are you doing right now with your work? What's happening? Um, well, luckily, we are in a moment where there hasn't been like a major local trauma right now. Um, <laughs> You know, and, and I, I kind of laugh when I say that, but, like, we had just been hit so hard um, so many times. Um, but actually what's happening right now is an incredible election cycle in the Twin Cities. There are um, all, all of our city council seats are up for office, as are the mayors of both Minneapolis and St. Paul. Um, and the park board and some, like, local offices where actually power really sits in our cities. And... Um, and outgrowth, uh, you can see the direct connection to the organizing and activism that's been happening over the last few years um, because uh, at least five of the candidates for Minneapolis City Council, for example, are black and brown, queer and trans folks. You would have never seen that before. And it, it is a direct outpouring of the organizing and the um, just like the, you know, the behind the scenes work. So everybody, you know, they yelled and screamed when folks shut down the freeways. This isn't going to change anything, blah, 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 blah. And meanwhile, here we are. You're right that, like, two days after the shooting of another black man, you did not have new political candidates on the scene. But, like, look where we are two years later, right? Mm -hmm. um, it, so it's not always immediate. <laughs> exactly. Thing. Exactly. But like, it, it takes time. Thing. That's right. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see what happens there. Um in terms of my own work, uh, right now a lot of it a lot of it is about getting congregations, predominantly white congregations, to build deeper relationships with each other and with social justice movements led by Black and Brown people. Um, so that looks a lot of different ways. It looks like um, doing some asset mapping of congregations to figure out what resources they have that they're willing to share doing some of the back work so that congregations are ready to share those resources strategically. Um, <coughs> it looks like doing education around racial justice and at the intersection of faith um, and racial justice. Uh, I do a lot of collaboration with um, folks of other denominations and traditions. Yeah. I do have a question. So, because not everyone's going to know the difference between social justice and racial oh, justice. Sure. So, if you could just help yeah, absolutely. explain that. Yeah, um, when we talk about uh, social justice, it's really a, a broad framework for um, any system that impacts human beings um, and that, you know, social justice is the idea that we live in a world, it's a state of being, right? If we had social justice, we would live in a world in which all people have the opportunity to be free and whole and healthy and safe and have access to, to the resources that they need to flourish. Um, so when I say we're working for social justice, it's combating all of the systems that keep those that possibility from emerging and also to build alternative systems, alternative ways of being that don't replicate oppression. So that's social justice. Racial justice is like the particular strand in there that's about, um, I like to say, you know, race isn't real, but racism is. So people are treated differently based on their um, the color of their skin, their ethnicity, 
um, the ways in which we describe people um, according to this false category of race. Uh, and so racial justice is looking to shift systems so that people have access to all those things I just described under the social justice definition, um, but in particular to weed out the insidious way that this false categorization of race has been used to racialize entire groups of people, to describe them and to oppress them and confine them based on skin color, ethnicity, nationality, yada yada. Boom, there you go. Yeah. Another definition to write down, folks. Yeah, so that's the work. You know, um, there is never a shortage of it, and it is both hard but uh, and, and joyful. Um, so, yeah. Awesome. What are the life lessons from doing this work? Um, with community, everything is possible. I think is the biggest one. Just that, like, um, you know, we talk about collective liberation, this idea that none of us are free until all of us are free. Um, but hey, it's going to take a long time for all of us to get free. And the thing that, to me, what salvation looks like um, is the practice of community, the practice of trying to live into that world, that social justice frame that I talked about earlier, which is something that we've never seen before. None of us have seen that world in our lifetimes, and perhaps no human has ever seen that world. Um, but when we have trust and uh, relationship with each other, we can experiment on a small scale what it looks like, which then gives us the imagination to figure out how to take it to scale, mm. how to do it on a broad level. So I, I mean, I think that's the biggest life lesson for me is that community is what saves us. It's what saves us. Okay. How can people reach you or follow you? Where are you at on the interwebs? If on you're the interwebs. There, yeah. If you're there, how, how can they find you? You can find me on Facebook, uh, Ashley Haran. Um, you can check out my organization's website at moosejaw, M-U-U-S-J-A dot org. Um, I'm also on Twitter, but I'm a real bad tweeter, uh, and not, I'm not on the gram too often, but I'm there too. So, um, yeah, you can find me any of those places. Okay, Ashley Horan. So H-O-R-A-N. Got it. And last question, final question. How do you feel about Captain Planet? He's a hero, gonna take pollution down to zero, gonna help us put us under bad guys who like to loot and plunder. Uh, oh, great. Yes. yes. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Edetikumbo. Thank you so much. All right, everyone. It has been a pleasure having Ashley Horan here, and we will see you all next time. Bye-bye. Bye. See you on the other side of awesome.